Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is one ep- uh, episode 164, and we're going to be interviewing Danny M. How you doing, Danny? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. So let's get started. Tell me about growing up in your childhood. Oh, well, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, in a pretty culturally diverse neighborhood. Uh uh, went to Catholic school my whole life. Grandparents lived two doors down. They were immigrants. Um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, every day was just the same thing, you know, went to Catholic school, came home, did homework, had dinner, that kind of thing. Um, uh, my dad was a Chicago police officer. Um, so he, he wasn't around a lot. Uh, my mom and ma- my mom and dad have been married for uh, 52 years now, but um, as a child, he was always working. He wasn't around that much. So, um, you know, I, I guess it was, a st- <laughs> no one's really ever asked me that before. I guess uh, it's a kind of a, you know, I, I don't want to say a stereotypical uh, childhood, but it was just, you know, I mean, the seventies, eighties, you know, I'm 51 years old. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, pretty interesting childhood. I participated in sports, um, was very into my faith, the Catholic faith. Um, it was a requirement <laughs> if That's I wanted to eat in my, in my house, if I wanted to eat, I had to, on Sundays, you had to go to church. You, you know, my grand, my, my mom was from Italy. So my grandparents never really spoke English. And it was like, you know, the big Italian tradition on set on Sunday, you know, the dinner and lunch and, but you had to go to church. If you didn't go to church, you weren't eating. So I grew up in that, um, that type of environment. The, again, the neighborhood was pretty culturally diverse. Um, what other types of cultures? Uh, largely Hispanic. Um, and then you had African-American, uh, you know, within six blocks, you know, it's Chicago is very segregated, you know, uh, as it relates at least back then. So once you cross Western Avenue going East, it was Inglewood pretty much. And, um, it was African-American, but you know, it would, we all we all pretty much no one really i don't remember any kind of like drama between races or anything like that as a kid growing up we you know we all played football together we'd meet at gage park and we'd play football and you know we'd play baseball together and you know uh there wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh um i don't remember being hated or hating anybody how about that you know it just wasn't it wasn't part of it wasn't part of the process back then we just didn't never really got it so how was life at school well it's pretty good um you know uh back then i did have nuns teach you don't really see that now right in the cat like mm-hmm. we, your kids you know people's kids go to catholic school you don't really see that but i had nuns teaching i had um um you know uh regular lay faculty teaching um, I, I did not do well in school. Um, I would come to find out years later that I have dyslexia. So I did not do very well in school. I was an average student at best um, in grade school and had very a great deal of difficulty reading, um, especially reading out loud. I'd become anxious and I'd get the words would get jumbled up in my head and I could never get it out. And I remember people laughing at me because of that. I remember that. So that was pretty, it was pretty intense when someone call on me to read out loud in class from as far back as I can remember, I'd start freaking out in my head because I, I just couldn't read very well. 
Yeah, I don't think I had dyslexia, but I remember uh, I used to get so nervous getting called on in class to read. I don't know why. I mean, I was an okay reader, but I still had just an overwhelming sense of like panic when it came time for me to read. Yeah, it was it was very it was very difficult for me. I and when I'd have to read books and stuff, I just it would it just didn't work. Later on in life, I would formally get tested by a psychologist to find out that I had dyslexia. So I I made sure to bring my parents that report and said, you know, here's for all the butt whoopings I got for bad report cards. And I hope you feel guilty now because <laughs> I told you something was wrong. You didn't listen to me. So, yeah. So what exactly is dyslexia? How does that work? Uh, dyslexia is, you know, I don't know what they classify it as, but it's basically you, um, from my perspective, my dyslexia, what it, what it kind of represents is, um, when you're reading, you really don't retain the information. You have a hard time putting sentence structure together. Um, you have a hard time focusing on the words, uh, and, and reading out loud. So when I read out loud, even to this day, you know, like I'm reading the word could say here, uh, you can add spinach and mushrooms, right? It says on this piece of paper, I'll be reading it in front of somebody. I'll be like, uh, you can, uh, you can add, uh, spinach and, and mushrooms to the eggs for taste. If you would like, that's kind of what it sounds like. Right. Cause I, I have a hard time digesting those words. Um, yeah, reading and reading comprehension, you can forget about it. You know, I can read something 800 times and, I couldn't tell you a horrible test taker, you know, um, when it comes to big tests, I, 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 I have horrible, you know, it's not an anxiety. I'm not nervous about taking the test, but once I get in the test, reading the questions, I have to read, I need extra time for any tests. When I took collegiately later on, I'd have to get extra time. So it was very, very difficult to navigate that. And I always felt like there was something wrong. And, uh, in the third grade, I remember in the third grade, um, a teacher telling my parents, you need to take them to this reading lab. And they took me to this, I think it was university of Chicago. Um, again, this is 1970 something. Right. So they took me there and, uh, they tested me and, you know, I, I don't really remember what the outcome was, but I was going there for a little while and then my parents stopped taking me on, you know, I don't know if they told them that, you know, don't bring me or, um, the insurance didn't cover it or whatever it was. But, um, yeah, it was definitely, definitely an issue. And it, it, it really impacted me in high school too, you know, and then college on the front end. Did you have trouble with the kids because of it when you were young? Uh, some, I mean, you know, some kids would make fun of me, but you know, um, <laughs> it, you know, it'd make me sad and upset, you know, but I, I don't think I, um, I was, I was pretty decent at, at sports, you know, particularly football. So, um, you know, if someone made fun of me, I'd, <laughs> I'd take it out on the field. You know what I mean? Like when they caught yeah. the ball, I'd make sure I'd get over there in a hurry and, uh, you know, maybe take care of a little business, you know, that kind of thing. Did you enjoy playing football? I did. I, that, that was my favorite thing to do. Uh, as a kid, you know, back then they would say, you hear people complaining all the time. My generation would say, you know, like we stayed out to the streetlights and that was legit. I never wanted to come home when I was playing football. I, I That's all I ever wanted to do, you know, um, from the time I got up in the morning till the time I went to bed, you know, uh, it was play football. And if I wasn't playing it, I was watching it. 
you know, that was my favorite thing to do. What kind of grades did you get at school? C's, you know, I'd get an occasional D maybe if I was really interested in the topic or the class, like my senior, I remember my all through high school, I had C's, you know, occasional B, but mostly C's I'd have a D here and there. And, uh, uh, my parents would would say if you if you fail and you got to go to summer school you're gonna go to local uh, the local high school and I, I didn't want to go there because I played football for my high school and I had friends there and so I would try my hardest and I get C's I mean I would really work and <laughs> I would get a C and then occasional B if I was really interested in a topic like my senior year I remember taking psychology um, and taking uh, criminal criminal justice criminal law. And I got A's in those classes because they really interested me. And I seemed to kind of grasp those concepts pretty quickly. And it was interesting. So in those classes, I did get, I did get A's, but those were the only one math, science, forget it, science, math. It, it wasn't even, you know, and, and to be fair, I couldn't, I couldn't have cared less, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I wanted to, you know, play football or live my life. And, and I, you know, that was it. I planned on going in the military out of high school and, uh, uh, I did not. So, um, I went on to community college and just kind of floated, uh, through there again, C's, B's, uh, if the topic really interested me, criminal justice courses or psychology courses, I got an A, but anything other than that, I didn't. And I was really concerned community college about drinking. So that was, one of the things that uh, uh, that was kind of my, like every day after after school, I'd go to this guy's house and we'd have a case of beer, you know, and just hang out in the yard um, or in the garage. It'd be freezing cold and we'd have a barbecue going in there like stupid. Like now I'm thinking I'd carbon monoxide yeah. poison. I'd kill myself. But, you know, just to drink a case of beer or something, you know, we'd get some guy to buy us a case of beer, some older dude, you know, hey, you buy us beer and you know, that was like my thing. What year or what age, I should say, were you ever first ex exposed to like drugs? Now, when did you first know what it was? Like, did your parents drink even casually or? Uh, well, my, my dad has, you know, he's, he, you know, my dad's been sober for about 28 years. Right. So uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic, you know, my uncle, uh, pretty much everybody on my dad's side of the family that was male was an alcoholic. Um, um, you know, I, I don't want to say it was predestined, but I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that's kind of how it was going to end up for me. Um, the first time I drank a beer, I was 13 years old and I was in a guy's garage that I went to grade school with who ended up transferring another grade school, but he still lived in the neighborhood. And I, I drank with a bunch of guys in his garage. I was 13 years old. I was going into eighth grade. Uh, I never really, it wasn't a regular occurrence then. Um, but then, um, as I got older in high school, I'd start sneaking stuff from my dad's bar. You know, uh, he had this big bar in the basement that they had built, you know, like now I look at my, my basement's a gym. You know, if I bought a house with a bar, I would tear that thing right out, you know, cause yeah. of the misery that, that it caused me. Um, but I'd go down to my dad's bar and I'd sneak here and there every once in a while. If I was getting anxious about something, you know, or, 
worried about something. I just, you know, I'd have a couple of drinks and it would calm me down. And again, it wasn't really a regular thing until probably my junior year of high school, junior year of high school, I started going to parties. I was able to drive. And then that, then it became more of a regular thing. Really my senior year, that's kind of what I spent doing on my weekends, you know, was, um, going to parties and having beer and stuff like that. Um, and then in college, it was everything. That's, you know, I mean, pretty much all I ever did. Um, how old were you? <clears throat> how old were you when your dad got so? You uh, 28 years. So what was that? 20, like, I was 23. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah. Um. So he was an alcoholic when you were growing up. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he's a, a binge guy. You know, he's a binge guy. I was reading some statistics before I came on here about binging. And he, he was a binge guy. You know, he wouldn't. Um, you know, in full disclosure, I, I spent 20 years in law enforcement, most of them with the Chicago police department. My dad was a Chicago police officer. Right. So, um, so I never, I never really got into drugs. I, I know I could have easily gotten to drugs, but I was petrified that I wouldn't be able to get on that job. If I ever, there were opportunities that came up, you know, to do some, you know, like weed or something at a party. And I'm like, Oh man, if I do that, he's going to kill me. You know, and it was just an intense fear that, you know, or losing the job was always in the back of my mind, but I would drink until I was oblivious, you know? Um, but he, I was 23 when he got sober. Um, so like I said, he was a binge guy and he, you know, a big binge guy, like he wouldn't drink, you know, he wasn't an everyday guy. He wasn't a functional, but if he did drink maybe once a month, he would, he would get obliterated. You know, he wouldn't know when to stop. One was too many and a hundred ain't enough, you know? And that's kind of like, that's where mine was too, you know, but there were times that I would, I'd have to, you know, like I would have to drink too. I worked undercover uh, in the narcotics unit where I bought drugs and I was so petrified of doing that job that I, I'm, I might drink a half dog of whiskey before just to take the nerves off and, and be able to do it because I hated it. I hated my boss. I, I, and I always felt like I was not accomplishing anything, you know, doing that job. You know, I felt like I wasn't helping anybody, you know, why is that? Well, you know, I mean, I have my whole ideology on, on, on drug arrests, right. We're just per- perpetuating a cycle of negativity, you know, yeah. especially when you're arresting somebody that's got a bag of dope on them. You're like, why would, why would I, why would I want to do that? I'm just going to put this poor guy or gal back in a system that doesn't give a crap about them. Right. So, I mean, at 51 years old now with a doctorate, three master's degrees, you know, and dyslexia, um, and being sober, um, I have two years now, but I had a long-term sobriety of seven years, you know, I was off, off of, you know, alcohol and doing well for seven years. And I relapsed, you know, and I drank for 14 years and I lied to myself. So, um, the entire, all 14 years, and I knew what I was doing was stupid. And I knew what I was doing was crazy, you know, for me. And I would tell myself, you know, like, Oh, you, you let's just get through this kid. My kid played hockey. So, a big thing with the hockey parents or baseball parents, any parents is, you know, the cooler afterwards. Well, I was the cool dad. You know, I always had the cooler full of beer. Everyone wanted to be around me. And, you know, I loved being that guy, but I also hated being that guy, you know, because I knew that I had a problem and I couldn't stop, you know, and I would beg people to stay when people were like, Hey, I got to go home. I got to work tomorrow. No, no, stick around. Have one more, have two more. You know what I mean? Like for 14 years, you know, my addict brain kept telling me, you know, like, no, don't worry about it. You can, you know, you can control it. 
you know, I wouldn't drink for one week and I'd be like, see, you're good. You know, but then when I drank, you know, it was like, uh, you know, a one or two day bender, you know, and, um, you know, it, it was, it was very difficult, you know, and that, that, uh, manifested itself pretty early, you know, so it's tough. So what age did you think you first realized you kind of have an issue? Well, actually, let me ask you this. What age were you when you first joined the police department? 21 years old. So you were a kid. Yeah. Um, is that, I got, uh, I, I got into law enforcement at uh, 18 as an explorer, 17 as an explorer, which is like, you know, um, you ride along with the police, you might volunteer at a police station. I did that in a suburb of Chicago. And then I became a community service officer at 19 years old. You know, you're just like chasing loose dogs or helping people in the, you know, as a suburb. So you're helping people with different non-essential police calls, directing traffic at accidents or things like that, you know, running errands, dropping off court papers. So I did that. That was my first paid job in law enforcement, but in Illinois, you have to be 21 to be a full-time sworn police officer. And I, that's how old I was when I got my first full-time sworn job. So uh, I was exposed to that life pretty early and uh, it, uh, it, it impacted me, you know, not in a positive way. I was probably too young to do that. So. I was just about to say, it's amazing how they hired. I mean, you know, at that age, you're so young to see certain things, you know what I mean? Especially the, processor they would be mature about yeah it was a lot of responsibility for someone very young and um you know having to live up to my dad's expectations was you know it was it was it was terrible you know my my dad my dad was a bomb tech you know and he disarmed a bomb you know a real bomb (laughs) and he won all these awards and stuff like that and I always felt like you know, I was like his flunky son, you know, because I didn't, I didn't do anything like that. So I had that kind of thing always in my mind, like chasing that, you know, chasing those shoes, trying to fill those shoes. And, um, when I first started at 21 years old, I got, it was like a, an opportunity that came up that does not come up all of the time. And I, I, I tested for a federally funded narcotics task force. Right. So I, I, I got hired. Um, I was one of 12 people. And then they asked me, a guy came up to me when I was in narcotics uh, identification school, like learning about narcotics. Now, I, again, I, you know, I was an athlete and I was in law enforcement young uh, as an explorer. So I really didn't get into the drug scene. You know, it was all drinking for me. And um, a guy came up to me and goes, Hey, how old are you? And I go, I'm 21. He goes, I know you got to be 21 to be a cop, but you look like you're like 14 years old. I, I did. I mean, I shaved like twice a week. He's like, you want to buy drugs undercover? And I'm like, I don't know about that, man. You know, like, I don't know if I'm going to be really good at that. And uh, he's like, you know, you're, he goes, I read in your personnel file, your dad's a cop in Chicago on the HBT team, which is the SWAT team. And he works in the gang crimes unit. I said, yeah, he goes, go home and ask him if he thinks you should work for Meg. I said, okay. So I went and asked him and he's like, oh yeah, those guys get a car. They you know, they like, they get to do whatever they want. You know, they dress in soft clothes all the time, which is plain clothes. You know, they're like undercover guys, grow their hair long, you know, all that stuff. I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, you should definitely do it. And I did it. And it was like pounding the round peg in the square hole. It just was not me at all. I, I, I did not, 
you know, it was terrible. And I, I really didn't have the best supervisors either. These guys were, you know, old crotchety guys and they didn't really want to mentor anybody, you know, and a lot of them were kind of envious, I think, because I was so young and I got that job and they probably worked like 20 years before they got in that unit, you know, so they were, uh, they weren't very, uh, you know, very uh, astute in the ways of leadership. So it became, it became just a nightmare. <laughs> you know, it was like a nightmare. I hated it. I hated going to work every day. And there was a time where I wanted to quit. You know, I'm like, this is not me. I was just going to quit the job in general. And uh, I went to my dad and I said, Hey man, I, I want to quit. And he's like, uh, why do you want to quit? And I said, this just, it's not me. This whole cop thing isn't me, you know? And he's like, you know, you're waiting to get on the Chicago police department. Why don't you wait till you get there? And uh, it's going to be better. It'll be different. You're not, you know, um, doing, you know, you're not buying drugs undercover and stuff. I go, yeah, but I hate this. You know what I mean? Like I might not get hired for Chicago for like another two or three years. Like I hate, I'm 20 at the time. I'm like 22 years old, 23 years old. And I hate what I'm doing. Like I hate it. So, um, I want I, you know, I really wanted to go into military out of high school and he was against it cause he's a Vietnam veteran. You know, he was in the army. Um, he was, uh, my dad's, a. am um, I'm average, you know, I'm five ten. My dad's five foot four. Right. So he crawled around in tunnels in Vietnam. That was his deal. So uh, that's some scary yeah. shit at 19 years old. So, you know, like the alcoholism and everything like that, I can understand, you know, like, and I remember him telling me that, you know, uh, you know, not, you know, not to be, uh, a wimp, but he used another word <laughs> and don't tell anybody at work that I'm scared or they're going to fire me and don't tell, you know, I mean, it, it was not very, you know, like, well, what's going on or anything like that. And, and in 1993 or 94, there wasn't employees assistance programs or any kind of counseling sessions to go to there, Everyone's like, just here, have a Miller light and shut up. That was it. You know, alcohol was a lot to, that's how you dealt with everything. You know, come on, kid, let's go to the bar. Right. So, um, that was not, that was not healthy at all. And, um, I wanted to quit. He talked me out of it. And I remember telling him, I want to go to, I want to be a football coach in high school and like a history teacher or something. And, you know, he laughed and he said, you're not, you know, just stick this out. Everything will be fine. So I, you know, I mean, followed his, he was kind of a mentor. So I followed his advice and I, you know, I ended up going to Chicago and, um, um, I, I didn't, I didn't really, I ended up working in a patrol unit and then, um, going to the same unit he was in special ops. And I was there, we went across, it was a citywide unit. You went to the worst areas of the city and, uh, you, you're, you're there to combat violence you know, like shootings, homicides, you're there to, you know, um, make sure that those things didn't happen by being highly visible and all those good things. So, um, and then in that unit, they pick people for the SWAT team. They call it hostage barricade terrorist team, HBT. So naturally I wanted to do that because my dad did it. So I made that team. And uh, no matter, I, I, I could have been the best HBT guy on the planet, but it wouldn't have mattered because I was my dad's kid. You know what I mean? Like it was always... Oh, you're Danny's son. You know, my dad's Danny too. Right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, I could have like caught in the world's most wanted terrorist. You know, I brought him in and they'd be like, oh, where's your dad? You know what I mean? Like, 
so there's nothing I could have done. So chasing that shadow made it really, uh, really miserable. Um, but then it, it, towards the end of my career, I really started liking it because I ended up being promoted to a sergeant. I went to patrol. I went back to the SWAT team uh, to be the support, uh, weapons of mass destruction, safety, and support. I had learned a lot about WMD while on the SWAT team as a police officer. I went to a lot of training for it. Um, and when I made sergeant, they brought me back to kind of run that aspect of the team. And I also became the chief hostage negotiator because my first master's is in counseling psychology. So that's when I really liked it. I hit the the point in my career. I was like, I love this because I was actually helping people. If that makes sense. Like I'm talking to this person who is in the point of their life where that, you know, I'm going to take my own life. You know, I, I just, I have nothing to live for. My girlfriend left me. I lost my job. My mom just died. You know, uh, you know, I just, I can't deal with this. And you talk to this person for eight hours and they came out of the house alive. I had, I had goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about these incidents. Like I actually made an impact today. This is what I'm talking about when I say help, you know, like now I am actually helping somebody. Right. And this is what I was born to do. Right. Um, and then I got hurt. So I've had uh, three or four surgeries, uh, three to be exact with four procedures on my, my hand. And, uh, it's, it's my weapon hand. So the, the rules of the police department are, if you cannot safely operate a weapon, you cannot be a police officer. So I had 20 years of service. I was 41 years old and I had to leave the job. Um, so well, that, that was pretty tough. That's kind of lucky that you got 20 years into your pension, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and since it's duty related that, you know, they really take care of you when you get hurt and on in the line of duty, you know, some people get hurt where, I mean, they're impaired for life, you know, shot or something like that. I, I just, I broke my wrist, you know, and, um, it, it required surgeries. It required removing bones. It required moving nerves. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty intense and I was drinking at that time. So that year that I was off of work, I just, I would drink a case of beer, need a pizza a day. You know what I mean, like I didn't, I just didn't care about anything. You know, it was, it was, I was miserable. You know, I went from being miserable on the job to loving the job. And now it's, you know, it's miserable that coupled with raising a, you know, an autistic and well now he's 22, but he was diagnosed the day before his second birthday. I have a son with autism you know, and then two neurotypical children raising them being divorced from their mom, um, you know, and having them being their residential parent, right. And being responsible for all their bills and everything. It was just, I mean, I, I went into a deep, dark, uh, hole and, uh, it was hard. It was hard to crawl out of that. It really was, um, you know, and everyone would always come over to my house cause it was party house. I mean, like I had a garage with the fridge and beers and TVs and, you know, sound system. And we just sit in a garage, watch football all day and drink from 10 in the morning till, well, I don't know, three in the morning, start gambling in the garage. You know, I just, it was, it was bad. It was bad, man, for that 14 years. And every time I did it, the next day I'd wake up and said, you were sober for six years 11 months, two weeks of your life. What the F are you doing right now? Like I would beat myself up so badly because that 
that almost seven years of sobriety was when my son was diagnosed, when uh, my kid's mom and I got divorced and I made solid decisions. You know what I mean? Like I was like, okay, you know, well, this is happening. So we're going to do this. Right. And then one day I just relapsed. I was with uh, the guy that I worked with on uh, um, my partner on the HPT team. And we were at a Hooters. I, I, again, I wasn't drinking. And he got himself a bucket of beers. <laughs> and he lo- I, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He looked at me, he goes, you want a beer? And I'm like, yeah, I want a beer. Just like that. Just like that. After six years, 11 months and two weeks. Just like that, like this. Instantly. Yep. Give me that beer. And, you know, I didn't like hit the ground where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have one and see what happens. Right. See if the monster comes out. I think, I think I had like 18 beers, you know, and then, then I get in the car and drive home like an idiot. You know, I'm lucky I didn't kill anybody or myself. You know what I mean? Losing the job. That's not even, I'm not even worried about that. I'm worried about killing somebody. Right. Cause I'm an idiot. So I, I hit the ground running, man, that <laughs> I was off to the races. And then after that, it was like, Hey man, it worked out nice, huh? Worked out nice. Let's, 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 let's repeat this. So people who knew I was sober for long-term sobriety, they were puzzled at my drinking, but also they liked a lot of people liked that I drank because, you know, I was, I was a lot of fun when I drank, you know, according to them. Um, I, I look back, it's embarrassing. You know, I, there's pictures of me at my son's hockey tournaments where there's, you know, 22 empty beer bottles, you know, like six hours. And they took a picture of me. They're like, oh, this guy, he's, you're a machine. I'm like, yeah, all right, let's go. Where are we going now? Let's go out somewhere. You know, it, 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 to me, it was just stupid. Now I look back, I'm like, how embarrassing for my son. You know, your dad's the the team idiot dad, you know. I just... I, I, I continually beat myself up even to this day for allowing myself to let that happen. But I do give myself a break every time I go through the steps or I go to an AA meeting, you know, or I talk to my sponsor when I start feeling that way. And I, I cut myself some slack, you know, because, you know, it was, it was hard. It was a disease for me and it was hard, you know, it was really hard. It was, you know, and during that time I got a doctorate while I was drinking, you know, got two more master's degrees. Uh, the second, uh, th- third master's I got, I was sober. So that, that was a different one, but you know, had I had not had those experiences, what, what would I have drank more? You know what I mean? Like I, these questions I asked myself, like if I didn't have those things, like the sense of responsibility to get work done, I would just drink more, you know what I mean? Or found another excuse to party. So those things, you know, that education piece for me, um, these people say, what, do you, what are you doing as an ex-comp with a doctor and three master's degrees? I'm like, well, I do mental health therapy with first responders, right, and counselor. And I teach at a college and I educate all first responders going back to school to get bachelor's or master's degrees. So in a way that helped me, you know, but I think it helped me more by being giving me that sense of responsibility and keeping me away from drinking, if that makes sense, refocusing, repurposing my time. You got me thinking, man. Yeah. That's my goal. That's what I want. That's what I, that's what I want you thinking about. Yeah. Um, 
So when did you recognize, okay, this is getting out of hand. I'm drinking too much. This is just not good. Well, the first time uh, I had just gotten married to my kid's mother and I, you know, I was still living the life of a single guy, you know, after work, let's go out and drink until, you know, four in the morning, five in the morning, you're watching the sunrise in Chicago, you know, standing outside of some bar, you know, cause you go to the bar, the bar is going to close at two. So then you go to the four o'clock bar, you know, then you drink at the four o'clock bar till that closes. And then in your car, you, I, you know, I'd have a cooler. You know, I have a cooler in there. So when that bar closed, at least we'd have a couple more beers and we just sit there. And so, you know, I, I had a daughter, you know, who was one years old. She's 24 now, right? She's going to be 24 this month. So um, I had a daughter who was, you know, like less than a year old. Um, my wife at the time was, you know, very upset about me coming home like this all of the time. And uh, so we went to a counselor. A police department provided. They had this place. They call it employees assistance now, but back then it was called St. Michael's House. St. Michael's, you know, the archangel and the uh, patron saint of, you know, protectors. So uh, we went to St. Michael's House and this guy, we had some marriage counseling, you know, and I thought it was ridiculous to be married such a short time <laughs> having to go to marriage counseling. But as a counselor now, not necessarily, but back then I'm like, what am I doing? And I was. Uh, I think all couples should have to go to counseling. Sure. Agreed. Agreed. I, I treat police officers now and I'll have, you know, the spouse come into a, a session and I, I talk about trauma, you know, and I talk about what that looks like, you know, to, uh, to a police officer and how they think. And you, that sometimes it turns on a light switch with them. They're like, Oh, you know, not excusing the behavior, maybe explaining it, you know? So this guy told me, he goes, Hey man, I, I think you got a drinking problem. I'm like, hey, get out of here and drinking problem. He's like, well, that's all she's talking about is you're drinking. You know, like you're some, okay. So I recognized the problem and then I got, you know, uh, in a little bit of a jam off duty, let's say N nothing, uh, nothing, um, you know, where I hurt anybody or anything like that is more silly than anything. But, um, at that time it wasn't funny. You know what I mean? Like now I look back and I say, wow, that was stupid. You know, um, is nothing <laughs> like that, that was going to get me like fired or you know, anything like that, but it was, it was embarrassing. So I went and, um, I said, I, you know, I'm going to go into alcohol rehabilitation program. So I did, I went and got sober, detoxed, all that stuff. And then, um, went to the pro 28 day program at the time. This was 1999, May 15th of 1999. And, uh, I was sober until, uh, April. Uh, I mean, if I do the math, I know I was sober for, uh, six years, 11 months and two weeks. So like the end of April, you know, and, uh, of 2006. And that's when I, when I relapsed, but I knew back then when I was, when I was going to counseling with her, I knew I had a, I knew I had a problem when I was in college, you know what I mean? Let's say, you know, like I, when I'm going to this guy, Chris's house every day after school and we're pounding a case or two of beer between four of us, you know, that that's a problem. You know what I mean? Um, when I wasn't working at the police department as a community service officer, I'm at this dude's house till nine o'clock. I'm not doing homework. You know, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do in community college. <laughs> I'm at this dude's house. I, I, I knew it was, I knew it was a problem, but it was like my identity. It's like what everyone knew me was party guy. You know, this guy's a party guy. You know, he's fun. 
you know, um, and, uh, but I knew it was a problem. I, I, I didn't, I love the attention, but I didn't like the attention, you know, I would have rather that attention come in, in a different way than just me being a party guy or waiting for me to do something ridiculous or getting a fight with somebody, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I knew it was a problem then, but it really started like, I have a real problem here when I had to go to counseling with my kid's mom. And then after relapse, when I started drinking again, instantaneously, I knew it was wrong. Instantaneously, I knew I had a problem. And I would keep lying to myself. I'd put benchmarks like, if I don't, I'm not going to drink this week because I, I won't have a problem then if I don't drink this week. See, I can control it. <laughs> control it. No way. You know, one beer and it was it, you know, and I didn't have to fight with the demons then, you know, the demons that come, you know, and start talking to you and telling you all the things that you have to be pissed off about or all the things that you did wrong or everything, those demons, you know. Or the things you saw, that was even worse. <laughs> you know, things I saw in my career, you know, what people did to each other, you know, or stuff that happened directly to me, you know, like I drinking solved that the guys were right. You know what I mean? Like just drink it up, kid, and everything will be fine. They were right about that, but they never told me about the misery that came with it. You know, they never told me about that. So um, I knew, I knew. From the moment I relapsed, I knew the next day I was like, this is a problem. And I, and I stopped drinking, like, I'm going to quit drinking again. <laughs> it wasn't long before someone at work said, Hey, you want to go get a drink? Yeah, let's go get a drink. Sounds like a great idea. You know? So, yeah. What was the turning point in your life? Where you decided you needed to get sober. Uh, well, um, my, my second marriage failed, you know, and I was having issues and, you know, Danny boy, uh, my son with autism, now he's reaching 22 years old pretty soon. So he's going to age out of school. I got to start taking responsibility for that. I'm his guardian. You know, when he's 18, I get appointed as guardian. Uh, my other two children, you know, they, they need me, you know, in a way um, uh, to support them a little bit differently than when they were kids. Uh, and I just think that, uh, you know, get just one day I woke up and I was like, you know, someone who was a close friend of mine at the time um, said to me, you know, you need, you, you know, you need to quit drinking. You know, you're, you're not the same person, you know, when, when you're, when you're drinking than when you're sober, when you're sober, you're a brilliant person that cares about people. And you're always putting yourself out there helping people when you're drinking, you're like, you know, a selfish savage. You're just, you know, you're just drinking, drinking, drinking. Hey, you want another beer here? You want another beer? Let's have another beer. You know, hey, well, you know, you're, you're, you're like on a, on a whirlwind, you know? So I, I realized that if I were going to continue this, you know, one day it clicked that, that six years, 11 months, two weeks, you were sober. You made some really good decisions you really made some really, really good decisions. So um, that coupled with, you know, advice from friends and uh, people that I really cared about and loved that saw um, what was going on that I didn't necessarily see that one day I just said, okay, you know, it's time. It's time, you know, so I jumped back in the AA meetings, um, 
you know, I jumped back into that, uh, called an old friend. Um, you know, when I relapsed, uh, the hardest part about that for me, like the biggest punch in the gut was when my sponsor came up to me with my seven year coin and he went to hand it to me. And I said, you're going to have to keep that. And he went, Oh no. And I said, yeah, he goes, when I go about two weeks ago. And he's like, you were so close, you know, like, all right, well, you know, we can get you back. Let's, let's get back. Let's get back. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. I kind of like this life. You know what I mean? I like, you know, I kind of, I kind of like this. So thanks, but no thanks. So that, that was hard. So I ended up calling, uh, I didn't, I didn't call him cause I had heard he had relapsed years later. Um, and then he passed away. So, uh, I called a, a friend of mine who had had long-term sobriety, 25 years. And I, I asked him to sponsor me and told him what I was doing. We met for coffee. Um, we talked for about four hours and, um, that's when I knew this time that I need to be sober. I'm better sober. I'm better for everybody in my life sober, especially me, most importantly. So that was the turning point, you know, um, being 49 years old, you know, I was 28. The first time I got sober, you want to talk about difficult, especially in my world. You know, you'd be outside after work. Everyone would go in the parking lot with coolers of beer and guys would go to hand to a beer. You're like, no, I don't drink. What do you mean you don't drink? I don't drink. Well, you're 28 years old, man. You should be drinking. <laughs> no, I don't drink. And then guys would say, oh, you can't trust somebody who doesn't drink. You're like, really? <laughs> really? I think, he's, I think it should be you can't trust someone that does. I, I totally agree with you. I'm like, if you get, you know, if you get, you know, uh, in a, in a, in a crap show right now, who are you going to want the guy who's sober or the guy that's just drunk that's going to be helping you out of this. But you know, you don't think of that stuff. And 28 years old is very hard to maintain sobriety at 49. It's still difficult because I have the disease, you know, and, uh, I do a lot of self-reflection, a lot of praying, you know, and a lot of giving myself to God to help me. And, um, you know, it works for me. Um, man, <laughs> the both times the turning point was, you know, self-realization that this is probably going to kill me. It's probably going to kill me. Um, and, you know, I need to be here for my family and I need to be here um, for people that my job on earth is not done yet. So, um it gets me, it gets me by, but to answer your question, it was both a lot of self-realization. The first time was, you know, my wife at the time saying, Hey, and then the second time was my, my marriage fell apart. It fell apart years before I quit drinking. And I just, I just stayed in it to, you know, because it was convenient. You know what I mean? Like it was my ex-wife's house and I had a three and a half car garage built. It was heated. I had two TVs in there, you know, big time college football days, you know, we guys would come over 10 in the morning with cases of beer and we were watching college football game day and then watching the 11 o'clock game, the two 30 game, the six o'clock game, then, you know, like a nine o'clock game, you know, and then we'd be there and maybe play cards at one in the morning, you know, it was convenient, but I knew that, you know, I wasn't happy. My kids weren't happy. 
you know, in that, in that situation. And I, and I had to get myself out. So I knew that I made good decisions when I was sober that first time. So I, I got sober again. It was hard. It was harder this time, you know, to get sober. Um, it was hard at 28 and at 49, you know, I say it was easy, but it it, it was harder because the 14 years that I, that I was in relapse, I was having a great time. Everyone, and then that last, <laughs> the first year of my sobriety this time, my kids still on a travel hockey team were going all over and we had the COVID going, right? This, this is, this is a good story. So one of the dads shows up at the hockey tournament and we're in the, you know, we're in the room where all the parents and everyone meet. And I, I, before I went down there, I said some prayers, I said a rosary, you know, told God, give me strength. I don't want to be, I didn't want to be antisocial. Right. I, Cause I, I got along with kid got along with everybody. So, and my kid wanted to watch a movie in the room with his teammates. Okay. Well, I'm not going to sit there with a bunch of 17, 18 year old boys. I just, I can't, I don't have the time for you. I can't, you know, it's just a pain in the ass. So I'm like, okay, I go downstairs. I said a rosary before I went down, you know, God, give me the strength, you know, went downstairs. So one of the dads is like, Hey, you want a beer? And everyone knew I quit drinking. This guy is the first tournament he's on. His wife usually came to the tournaments. And I said, no, man, I quit drinking. And he's like, what? He's like, wait a minute. Did I hear that right? Like, it's a big deal. And he goes, let me get this straight. We've got COVID going down. The whole world's closed down. We got all these problems. Colleges are, you know, canceling classes, you know, and Danny quit drinking. He goes, I think that's the biggest shocker of the year. That that's sums up my drinking Oh, I mean, if this guy is that shocked with COVID going on, the world shut down that I quit drinking, that's such an impact to him. So that's why it was hard. Cause I loved that. I don't know if that makes sense. I loved that attention. I loved being that guy. Cause everyone always wanted to be around me. You know, I mean, my, my jokes and the stuff I would say when I was drunk and stuff, they, they would just get the, the, the biggest kicks out of them. And then they could talk me into, Hey, let's go to a, strip club. All right. Sounds like a great idea. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let's go. They get me to do anything when I was boozed up when I was sober. It's like, man, you, you go have fun, have fun storming the castle, man. I'll talk yeah. to you later. Call me for bond. If you need it, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. You know, and I might not give it to you. Maybe you need to sit there and think about yourself for a while. Right. So it, it that, that, that was, it was hard, man. It was hard both times. Who am I kidding? <laughs> So how long were you sober now? Uh, it was two years on August 19th. Oh, happy two-year anniversary. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. That's awesome. So what's life like for you nowadays? Oh, it's great. Um, you know, I have a great, I have a great partner. You know, um, she's wonderful. I have three stepkids, you know, uh, um, uh, six-year-old twins and, a, and an eight-year-old. Um, my son, Danny, 22, he's uh, aged out of the school system. He goes to an occupational day school um, in a suburb of Chicago where he actually works at job. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, I got teary-eyed when they told me. You know, like, I never thought he'd be able to do it. He works like a – he st- puts, like, bottles of wax and car wax, uh, turtle wax has a um, a, a contract with them and then some company that cre- makes horse shampoo and they just pack the boxes and load it up for shipping. So – they say, yeah, he just does an assembly line job. I'm like, that's awesome. Um, my daughter, you know, she's going to be 24. She's an accountant, downtown Chicago, KPMG, a big firm. So she's, you know, she's got her own place. I'm really proud of her. She's doing well. And then my my youngest uh, son, 
is 20 and he's uh, majoring in special ed. Cause you know, he's like, Hey, I've had my brother my whole life. I, you know, I kind of, kind of like helping out in that. And he's always volunteers for special Olympic stuff. Um, Danny does special Olympics. So oh, cool. You know, my life is really good, man. My life is it I, <laughs> being sober. It, this right now, this is it, man. Like I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. I don't, I don't miss, I don't miss that, that life, not one bit. No, me neither. Yeah. Not you know, one it, bit. It's a sad and lonely place to be addiction. It is. It's horrible. You know, and <laughs> on the surface, you may be the fun guy and all that stuff, but you know, I was really lonely on the inside. Oh yeah. Underneath you're hurting. Yeah. Uh, it was a terrible place to be, you know, I mean, the, the ch- childhood traumas and, you know, the traumas from the job and, you know, like I felt like I lived a false life. You know what I mean? Like all those years, like, you know, who the hell was I kid? I guess I was kidding everybody. I was, I put on a good face. You know, it's like the face of a clown, you know, everyone loves a clown. Yeah. So here I am. Um, you know, I, I play, I play in a bagpipe band. I've been playing bagpipes for a long time. Um, and that's probably like the most, <laughs> that's probably the worst place to be for someone who's sober. You know, because that's all it's about, you know, in the bagpipe band, it's, you know, it's the culture and, you know, when I went to Scotland to play in the world championship with the band, you know, that's all we did all day long was, I mean, you, you went and practiced and then you drank all night till four or five in the morning. Then you went to bed for two hours. You got up practice. I mean, it's a very hard place for a sober person to be. Although I know many people who are sober that do it um, now, um, because when I got sober, guys are like, oh, you're not drinking. I'm like, no. You know, I, I quit drinking and they're like, Oh, you're a friend of Bill and Bob's. Yeah. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Me too. You know, and the guys in the band will be like, what, what's that mean? Friend of, yeah, I know Bill too. You know, you talking about, you know, Bob, uh, Bob Oshefsky over there. No, no, mm-hmm. not Bob Oshefsky. No, you wouldn't know this Bill and Bob. Believe me, you don't know this Bill and Bob. Right. So, you know, you, you find people like that, but it's, you know, it's like, I feel good. You know, I feel better and I stopped lying to myself, you know, and lying to other people, pretending to be something I wasn't, you know, like being the real me and not have to remember to lie. You told, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're telling oh, some, yeah. some, some, somebody, some like, oh yeah, I once climbed the Empire State Building, you know, with just my shoes and my hands, you know, and they're like, what? And you're like, yeah. And then, yeah, you know, I got to remember that lie. You know, it's like, uh, I, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, I know it's, it's, the, it's the greatest feeling in the world, being honest. I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah, man. It's good. You know, my dad, my dad pointed out though, when I told him, I said, Hey, I'm I'm back. I'm gonna get sober again. You know, my, my dad tends to <laughs> say the darndest things. He goes, You know what? Hang on a minute. You know what? If if you would have stayed sober, you'd be twenty two years sober. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Thanks for pointing that out. You don't think I kick myself in the ass every day for that for the last 14 years, the stupid decisions I made, man, but now it's good. You know, it's good. I, I feel great. I feel great, man. I'm glad you do too. Yeah, no, I definitely do. I definitely do. So I've got one last question for you. I ask sure. everybody this question. Do you have any advice for people listening? Oh yeah. Um, first of all, <clears throat> a lot of advice. 
first of all, if, you know, if you think you have a problem, get some help, right? Uh, get yourself checked in, get yourself detoxed, get in a program, you know, go to the meetings, work the steps. It works. It works. And you'll be better off for it. You'll be better with every aspect of your life, especially you, which is the most important thing, right? You don't, you have to fight the demons, you know, when you're sober, you know what I'm talking about. You still have to fight them, but you'll learn that through the grace of God, through other people in the program, uh, through your sponsor, work on the steps, you're, you're going to be able to have the tools to be able to fight those demons and stay sober. So my advice would be, if you think you have a problem, you have a problem and get help. Don't keep thinking about what it's like if you, do I really have, I might not have a problem, right? And just because you don't drink for a week or you don't drug, you know, you stop your, your drug cycle. I mean, my thing was drinking, so I can't even, you know, I have no, I have no perspective on the drugs. Right. So from a drinking perspective, you know, if you don't drink for a week, doesn't mean that you're miraculously cured of your problem. Right. I remember my grandma used to call it the cure, you know, my grandma, you know, oh, that guy went through the cure, <laughs> you know, the cure. And I, I laugh about that, you know, still. But if you think you have, you think you have a problem, you most likely do. And don't yeah. stop thinking about it. Just go and get help. Thank you for that. I like that advice. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you have anything else you want to add in? No, thanks for having me on. I, I truly enjoy, um, I truly enjoy doing this. Um, I, I really do uh, talking about, my own situation and hopefully maybe it resonates with a couple of people that listen to your program, you know, and they can, you know, get something out of it is powerful. I just had a conversation with somebody the other day. Um, I do a lot of work with first responders in a mental health wellness capacity. And someone had said to me, you know, um, you know, I, I want to save cause we just had a few more police officers kill themselves and they're, I really, I'm like, look, you can only affect your sphere of influence, right? The people that are impactful in your life. You can't, you can't reach everybody, but the people you can reach, if you can reach one person, you know, one person and help one person, then that person will help somebody and it's just contagious, you know? So, um, be, be that person that helps others through your own example, I guess is my last thing I want to say. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Be yourself. hundred percent. Be yourself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us sometimes in recovery, they think we shouldn't be ourselves. And it's like, no, that's when you need, you need to, to be yourself the most. A hundred percent. You know, know thyself, right? Yep. Exactly. To yes. thy own self be true. Is that it? Like yes. That? That's exactly what it is. And if you're, you know, I try to avoid situations where I know that, you know, I don't, you know, again, being in a bagpipe band, having those people, they're, they're consistently drinking. I mean, they drink. It's, it's just part of the culture. And I don't have a lot of difficulty being around them when I do, but there's times I got to walk away from it. You know, I'm like, okay, I got to go. You know, back in the day when I drank, I'm there till, you know, I'm the last guy leaving for sure. Right. Now it's like, yeah, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't need this, you know? And it, it's, 
it's part of me is a fear of relapse, knowing thyself, right. You know, like it, you know, I had, I had a party here. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> one of the guys that we played in the band with, that's where I met. That's where I met Mary and, uh, in the band and, uh, he's having his second child. He's a younger guy. So we had, he's lives in Wisconsin about an hour and a half away from us. So we decided to host a party with the bandmates where he came and, you know, naturally we have beer and food at the party. And, uh, I remember he brought three cases of beer that was like one of my go-tos, right? The spotted cow. It's like this IPA from Wisconsin. Everyone here loves it. I'm like, man, he's got to bring this. It's like my kryptonite, man. You know? So I remember going to the bathroom in the basement of the house and I'm thinking, maybe if I just snuck one out of the fridge and chugged one, just one, like it just one, who would know, right? Like I would know, but I, I'd be fine with just one. Come on. It, you know, it won't hurt. Like my addict brain is talking to me, you know, and I've got the devil and angel, you know, I got the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other devil's like, go ahead, man, you can do it. You can do it. And the angel's going, Danny, come on, man. Don't be a jerk. You know, you know, what's going to happen if you have one. You're not going to be able to have one, you know, you can't do this, you know? So the angel prevailed obviously. Right. I mean, I'm yeah. like, but I, but I'm like, I, I can't, he left and there was like two cases of it. As soon, as soon as he left, I went to one of my neighbors and said, here, here's two cases of spotted cow. He's oh man, thanks. Like, Get it out of my house. Right. I know myself, right. That is when you have to be yourself. The most is when you're sober. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's a good spot to wrap it up. How do you feel? Oh, I feel great, man. Thanks for uh, letting me come on and tell my story. You know, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So do yeah. me a favor and sit tight. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and TikTok. I also suggest checking out our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find, uh, find plenty of resources as well as some free literature. That's all I have for today. So once again, I hope you enjoyed. And until next time.